Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association. The voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. After broad, wide-ranging election subpoenas were issued to the state's five largest cities, the GOP investigator in charge backs off on his request. And more candidates are launching campaigns for the 2022 elections, but others are deciding to withdraw. Plus, the DNR board acts unilaterally to significantly reduce Wisconsin's wolf hunt quota. All this and more on Rewind, or we can review for October 8th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. JR, in a major reversal when talking about Justice Gableman's uh, GOP election review, he just reverses actions completely. From just last week when we were talking, he served subpoenas mm-hmm. to some of the five largest cities in Wisconsin, served them subpoenas asking for a wide range, uh, a host of election documents. Just yesterday, completely different uh, testament, I guess, we're hearing from Gableman. He now is reversing course, says, hey, we don't want uh, all those documents anymore. We rather just focus on the ones that election officials have that many outlets, I'm sure both of us, have already requested through open record laws. So um, this also follows Gableman making kind of a bombshell statement that uh, most people myself included, do not have a comprehensive understanding or even any understanding of how election works. So when he issued the subpoenas at first, it caused kind of a a lot of outrage, I guess you can say. Mayors were frustrated. They thought it was going to be a complete waste of time. But now we're we're back to a different drawing board. Mm -hmm. So I guess, uh, what do you think all of this? I mean, it seems like every single time we talk about something Gableman is doing, he changes course in this this investigation. So the first round subpoenas to the clerks, one of them to be in uh, Brookfield on October 15th, a week from today, with thousands, not hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. Could even be millions, I even heard from some others. Yeah, at 9 a.m. at this office that he's renting in a strip mall in Brookfield. The subpoenas to mayors and the person most knowledgeable of the election um, was supposed to be for October 22nd. Again, asking for hundreds of thousands of pages. We weren't sure how he's going to conduct the interviews, if they'd be open. Uh, Madison Mayor said, if I'm going to be there, you should be two reporters. What's interesting about this is that the various missteps that he's made along the way. So recall back when he first sent communication to clerks. It came from a Gmail account. They were not sure what was going on. The subpoenas to the city clerks we saw a week ago Look at the cover letters. They went to Green Bay, Kenosha, um, Madison, Milwaukee, and Racine. The letters to the non-Green Bay cities all mentioned the Green Bay election cover letter. There were misspellings in the cover letters. Uh, It's just kind of not really instilling confidence in what's going on. And then now you have this, okay, we're not going to ask for subpoenas. We're going to ask for basically what's out there in open records requests, which we've already provided to people, which narrows the scope. What is clear is Gablin's trying to focus on these private grants toward communities to pay for the elections. So the Center for Technology and something life. Civic um, life. Civic life, yeah. thank you. Uh, funded mostly by Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook founder. Some 200 communities got money for the 2020 election to help cover the cost of putting an election in a pandemic. He's focusing on the five of the bulk of those. Happen to be democratically, mostly democratically cities, uh, democratic cities and election returns. Focusing on those, that's the issue he wants to look into. And there is definitely a, a question he had, an argument he had about whether it's appropriate for private money to pay for a public cost. Now, there was a federal lawsuit filed last year trying to stop this money from being used. The federal judge in that case said, look, there is the imp- appearance of impropriety to have private funds paying for election costs, but there's no prohibition on doing it. 
I'm just not sure where Yellen's going with this, and nobody else is either. That's What's the big he trying to do? Question. He also indicated during appearance on the Green Bay City Council hearing on Wednesday that the October 31st deadline Robin Voss gave him, the Assembly Speaker, is not realistic. So we don't know where he's going, how he's going to get there, or when he's going to finish up. Before we continue on this, you did mention the Green Bay uh, Common Council. He kind of just showed up, said he wanted to introduce himself. Mm -hmm. We do have some of his comments uh, that he gave there, kind of talking about what his goal is with this investigation. And we also will hear a little bit of how mayors at first were saying, we have nothing to hide. Let's take a listen. The purpose of this investigation is not a prosecution. It is not even litigation. This is not an adversarial process. We are all citizens of the same country. We are all citizens of the same state. We all want open, transparent, honest, and fair elections for which the administ administrators are accountable. The purpose of this investigation is to determine what was supposed to happen in the November 2020 election and compare that to what actually did happen, to see what went well and to see what might be improved upon. All of this was done for protection um, in a pandemic, and we were incredibly transparent, and we'll continue to be transparent, and we'll talk about why we thought this was a good thing and why we still think it's a very good thing. I've been very transparent. Um, we had these files approved by our common council. Uh, we talked about it publicly. This was not something that was in any way uh, uh, hidden. This was, this was being proud of our democracy and doing everything we can to make sure that people could vote safely during a pandemic. And we mentioned the mayors. We also mm -hmm. just, just heard from Mayor Tom Barrett. Uh, there was also election clerks last Friday and the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Um, I spoke to Ann Jacobs, the chairwoman of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, and she kind of put into perspective, once again, of how many documents this was. She said semi-truckloads of material. And she's just reiterating what a lot of election officials are saying is that what are you going to learn from every single one of these pieces of paper um, related to the election? And she says absolutely nothing. But now, you know, me and you just spoke to Madison's attorney, Michael Haas, who actually used to serve on WEC. He says, in general, he's thinking 15, 20 open record laws, mm -hmm. is which now the focus is of what these officials have and what they're going to eventually distribute to Gableman for his review. Remember we talked about this early on. The challenge for Gableman is the people who believe the election was stolen are not going to be satisfied unless he overturns the election or files charging somebody. He has said repeatedly he's not trying to relitigate the 2020 election in terms of who won. For Democrats, they're going to be satisfied because they don't trust what he's doing. Uh, they think that he, this is wrong-headed, a waste of taxpayer money, and that he's going down rabbit holes. And one thing about these small mistakes um, that kind of doesn't board well for the end product reminds me of this Van Halen story. Uh, so Van Halen had a uh, writer, their concert, concert writer that they, all the brown M&Ms, they want a bowl of M&Ms in their dressing room, all the brown ones be taken out. And for years it was like this you know, extravagant rock star story about how they were like so particular and like out of touch. What David Lee Roth eventually told people was that was actually a sign, they have a very complex, you know, concert set up. If you couldn't get the M&Ms right, you messed up the lighting or the sage precautions, they would check everything line by line of the sage setup if you failed the M&M test. Same thing for Gablin with his mistakes he's making. If you can't get this stuff right, if you're not giving people confidence about what you're doing for, uh, up front, how can they have confidence in your end product? That's what I can't figure out is like, what's he going to show and how can we have confidence in what he's showing if we can't get things right on the front end? And also the people he's associating himself mm -hmm. with. Um, I believe uh, 
he hired a Trump White House attorney, mm -hmm. correct, uh, Andrew Kloster, that's it, I know I wrote it down, yeah. um, who also was one of uh, those who claimed in previous statements, he told the Election Commission that he doesn't even have a full understanding how elections work. So every time we hear these, you know, you know, our sirens kind of go off. You know, you hired someone who doesn't really know how elections work. So how are you going to find those things and restore confidence in the elections when, you know, you say you don't un understand them? Well, uh, supposedly oh, well. you're supposed to be done in about four weeks. I don't think it's yeah. going to happen. Well, like you said, Gableman said he thinks it's unrealistic, the deadline that Speaker Voss just said last week of, I believe, October 31st or early November. So, so then we're watching for the Audit Bureau. Its mm -hmm. reports was done sometime this month. That was the hope. So yeah. that might get some more clarity about what's going on or where they're going. And then Gableman's report. And then... And then what? And then what? <laughs> well, I guess we have maps, right? Yeah. But we'll get to that topic. <laughs> That's going to happen this fall as well. Um, Want to move to um, some campaign announcements. There were some people that entered and some people who left. Um, two of the ones that are in new races is Senator Lena Taylor announced her candidacy for lieutenant governor. Uh, kind of newly elected Senator Brad Path from uh, on Alaska. Uh, he is running for the third congressional district, which is going to be uh, left vacant by Ron Kind, mm -hmm. who announced his retirement early this year. And uh, we talked about this last week, Ryan Owens. Um, he kind of had this uh, debacle with some tapes that he recorded at UW-Madison that criticized President Trump. And then a few days later, he says, well, it's I'm going to drop out. Um, I want to read his reasoning why. Um, in his statement, he said, the last few weeks have shown me that politics is even more disgusting than I expected. Having never run for political office before, I did not fully anticipate how disgusting it would get so quickly. I know I kind of just gave a broad overview of those three people. I first want to uh, send it to the video with Senator Taylor about her candidacy to lieutenant governor, and then we'll dive into the rest of these. Today, I'm announcing my candidacy for Lieutenant Governor of the state of Wisconsin. I know that there will be challenges, but I'm a lawyer, a small business owner, and a legislator for nearly two decades. I'm a woman, a mother, and I follow some amazing Lieutenant Governors. Lieutenant Governor Barbara Lawton, who was a Democrat, and Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who was a Republican. I stand here today to rise to the occasion, to help our state, our people move forward and to flourish. And I thank the people of Wisconsin for allowing me to serve. And I thank the governor for his leadership. And I hope that we can move forward together as we seek the office of, as, as we seek the offices for him of governor and me for Lieutenant Governor. I am excited to be in this race and I'm excited to join the team to take us forward. So, JR, let's start with uh, Senator Lena Taylor. Mm -hmm. she, Senator Lena Taylor, excuse me, slurred there. Um, she is the first Democratic candidate to come out saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rally support for Governor Evers, and I want to be with him eventually on the ticket. We know Wisconsin is unique. Lieutenant Governor's office does not run on the same, yep. on the ballot. They run uh, separate until we get, you know, after the primary. Then we'll see them start campaigning together. But she's the only one out there. Um, and one thing about her is that she does kind of have a history. Um, she was cited for disorderly conduct in Milwaukee, uh, you know, 
kind of berating a bank teller in 2019. Uh, there was other actions, uh, a human resources investigation in the legislature conducted by them, claiming that she bullied her staff and harassed them. Therefore, that kicked her off the Joint Finance Committee. So she does kind of have, in a sense, a little bit of baggage. But, you know, she's very vocal. Um, mm -hmm. She has a good record, you know, uh, serving many years in the state uh, legislature. Um, so I guess, what's your take on her running? Uh, nobody can doubt Lena's passion, her mm -hmm. intellect, her order skills. It's the other stuff that they worry about. And is she a loose cannon who could alienate as many people she brings to the, the table on a ticket with Tony Evers? Um, look, there are like half a dozen Democrats who are talking about running for lieutenant governor that I've heard about in the last few weeks. But talking about it versus getting in is a different story. Lena saw the opening and got in. Now, there's a lot of talk about Lena running for mayor again. Remember, she right. lost to Tony, uh, Tom Barrett uh, last spring with 36.9% of the vote, roughly, if I remember correctly. Yes. She still has the signs in her garage, I'm sure. So the thought was she could just pull those out and run again. The thing is, though, the field for mayor is going to be very crowded. And she also told me when I asked her at a press conference, I said, well, you were kind of a candidate for mayor. Why'd you go this route? And she says, as far as I know, you know, Mayor Barrett's yeah. still mayor. So <laughs> the window's not as open. But. Aaron L. Lucas, the sheriff, has already said he's going to get in. Chevy Johnson, the common council mm -hmm. uh, president, says he's going to get in. So there are going to be a lot of people running for mayor. There are not a lot of people running for lieutenant governor right now on the Democratic side. And oh, by the way, if you're in the minority in either house or legislature, it's no fun. You can't really shape anything. And they're not getting in that minority anytime soon. The map should be better in 2022. Doesn't look like a great environment for Democrats in 22 right now, so I don't know that there's a lot of hope about getting out of that minority. The majority, she's not on joint finance anymore. She's pulled off because of the whole thing with the harassment uh, complaint by a staffer. She's not in a position to shape things the way she could before, so why not? It's a free shot. She's not on the ballot for state senate in 2022, so why not run for lieutenant governor? You know, you never know. Uh, but again, the downsides, the things that she's done that have alienated people, what's going to happen, and will the Evers team try and find somebody else to get in to bring somebody new in, or will somebody else on his or her own get in because they see an opportunity there? Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be, you know, you said you've talked to some people who are interested in getting, uh, also running for this seat, so kind of remains to be seen if more people announce or maybe they just wait till next year. Um, another uh, uh, one who's in is Senator Brad Paff is running for Congressman Ron Kine's seat. Um, you know, he was one of Evers' cabinet secretaries that was kind of a, that was also in kind of a big bombshell. One of the first cabinet sec secretaries rejected from the state Senate. Um, that's when Evers had some, I guess, some some powerful words. Yeah. <laughs> it was very upset on his birthday. I think it happened, if I remember clearly. Um, you know, this is a very competitive district. Um, and overall, I mean, I guess, do you think he's got a chance? We know that Ron Kine narrowly won the seat mm -hmm. in 2020, so it, it could be a toss-up. So it depends what the district looks like. We're still waiting to see new lines for the 3rd District. It is a much, pretty much a 50-50 seat. It could go one with the other, depending on how things are shaped uh, by the new lines. There's that. Um, others are probably going to get in. Uh, Rebecca Cook is a businesswoman from Eau Claire. She posted on Facebook the day after, I think, Brad announced that she's seriously considering it. Stay tuned. Usually, if a candidate says, stay tuned, Something's they're going coming. to get in. <laughs> um, she'll have an interesting story to tell because she is a businesswoman who also used to be a fundraiser for uh, campaigns, worked out in a congressional district in California, I think, last time in 2014. So for Path, he's viewed as kind of Ron Kine's guy. Former Ron Kine aide, uh, got endorsed by Herb Cole this week, the former U.S. Senator. He strikes a moderate kind of tone, though not necessarily a moderate position on issues. That district has like moderate candidates, that personality. Ron Kime, Steve Gunnarsson, Republican, had the seat before Kind. But is that what that district wants anymore because it voted for Trump twice in 16 mm -hmm. and 20? Maybe that's changing. 
that's something to watch. Now, fundraising-wise, Derek Van Orden, the Republican, said he raised a million bucks. Yeah, last three week period. Since kind announced his retirement too. So he raised seven hundred fifty grand the first second quarter of the year, a million the third quarter. Now we don't haven't seen the actual numbers, his burn rate or how he raised it. Still, fundraising did not tail off with Ron Kind out of the race. The thing about the money thing is though, uh, one Ron Kind had one point four million in the bank in June. He cares about this district. He might use some of that money, or he could use some of that money to help the eventual Democratic nominee. The state Democratic Party is a fundraising machine under Ben Wickler. I mean, it raises money hand over fist. Mm -hmm. The party will not lack resources if that race is competitive. The thing is, what the lines look like. If it's a 50-50 seat, I expect a lot of money from that district. If it changes, if it becomes a heavily Republican seat, that's a different story. Yeah. Other thing is, you've already seen Brad lay down the foundation of Derek Van Oren as an insurrectionist and extremist. Um, and his rollout video kind of took some shots at Van Oren because he was at the protest January 6th, right. but preceded the violent protest at the Capitol. He says he wasn't in the Capitol and left as things got a little bit hairy, but still he was there at the early stages. They're going to betray Orton is this insurrectionist, like, you know, guy you can't trust. Is that a fit for the district? We'll see. Right. Um, and then lastly, we'll kind of just briefly talk about Ryan Owens because we also uh, talked about Owens uh, during stock uh, mm -hmm. stock picks last week. Um, so kind of his backstory there is were these tapes that I kind of mentioned e earlier that he was criticizing President Trump on. He still works for his UW-Madison uh, professor. Um, and he kind of just said it kind of got to him, I mm -hmm. guess, uh, how disgusting, quote, that I read earlier about how politics is. So uh, any surprise here um, from, from your take? Yes, because... The stuff that people saw in these tapes or the comments he made about Governor Evers that were somewhat you know, complimentary about the early stages of the stay-at-home order, the pandemic, they weren't fatal. I mean, he had right. a huge, he outraised Eric Tony seven to one in the uh, most recent reporting period. He had endorsements from all kinds of top Republicans. They were kind of like, this is not that big a deal. You mm -hmm. can survive this and move on. However- There's worse things out there in politics. And yes. <laughs> talking to uh, sources though, they really, pointed to his family. Uh, his son is autistic, and these things are hitting him quite hard because his son was saying, well, Dad, did, did you do something wrong? Like, why are they saying things about you in the press? And that's got to be gut-wrenching, and mm -hmm. so they understand why he would drop out, even though they thought, well, he really wasn't that bad of shape. He could have survived this and moved on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just unfortunate, uh, the side of politics, uh, when it comes to that, when it impacts people's families. Um, wishing him the best. Uh, also, this week we had uh, another public hearing on kind of a whole host uh, centering around abortion bills. Now, of course, we know many of these bills that I'm going to recap in a second are bound for Governor mm -hmm. Heber's veto pen. But next year, if Wisconsin elects a Republican governor, that could mean big changes to abortion laws. So let's briefly talk about the ones that were in the public hearing uh, on Thursday. Uh, some of them would require medical professionals to tell women who are considering abortion that it might be uh, might be unsuccessful. Um, I think I actually wrote that wrong. I apologize. Um, that's for medical abortions, mm -hmm. basically the pill that you take. Um, there's also research that shows medical abortions do have a success rate of 95%. And if unsuccessful, women can't take more medicine or have other options. So that's kind of the counter mm -hmm. for from Democrats. Why is this bill necessary? Another one would put more uh, restrictions or I guess would ask of more of DHS to start tracking where and what type of abortions are done and where they are being performed, uh, what is the reasoning behind some women are getting them. Uh, we're about to hear from Speaker Voss who talks specifically uh, about the DHS tracking bill and then uh, some doctors who are defending these bills who are calling them unnecessary and harmful to women.
These bills reflect a profound inability to understand the complicated, unique, often heart-wrenching life experiences that our patients endure. Worse, these politicians want to mandate treatment that is not based in evidence, science, or reality. Imagine you are sitting in an exam room with your physician, suffering from a problem and seeking solutions, and your own trusted doctor can't give you all of your options. She has to tell you things that she knows to be wrong because a group of politicians said so. I stand here today in support of comprehensive health care for women, delivered with quality, safety, integrity, and compassion. And I stand here today in firm opposition to the bills before us that create a dangerous and hostile environment for physicians and patients and ultimately prevent doctors from providing our patients with the accessible, evidence-based quality health care that we all deserve. Information is power. Uh, this bill has nothing to do um, with what some of the opponents have said to try to restrict abortion. In fact, it actually wants to empower women by giving them information that could give them a second thought and maybe give their baby the opportunity to survive um, through the procedure that they have initially chosen. You know, at a time where society has become so polarized on almost every topic, you would think on something that is simple and just trying to say, let's collect more data, let's make sure that people, when they make a decision, it's not saying they can't take the second pill for a chemical abortion. It's just saying we're giving a woman information to say, boy, if you've taken the second pill, you go home and talk about it with your family, you've thought about it, and you realize that maybe that was a bad choice. Here's some information to say what would happen if you'd made a different decision after the initial one. I, I just don't know why that has to be so hyper-partisan. Uh, it's really just providing information. So, you know, other bills, I, you know, I support those too. I understand why people have more of a, 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 an objection to those because they might actually have a direct impact on reducing the number of babies that are killed. I get that. This is really just about information, so I don't know why people are against information. Sure. So nobody's reached out saying they don't want to have information. Uh, I also want to share uh, Planned Parenthood's executive director reaction to these bills in general. They said these bills are being pushed by politicians who are making a clear choice to incite fear and misinformation to advance their personal goal of banning abortion criminalizing doctors and blocking access to birth control and sex education. The criminalizing doctors is focusing specifically on that Born Alive legislation mm -hmm. that the Senate passed. What was that last yes. week? Yeah, it's been busy. It's been Senate the past week. So this is the assembly version, which basically uh, nurses who don't step in to take care of a baby in the rare instances that it is breathing or showing signs that it is alive, that they could, if they don't step in and provide medical care, they could be held, uh, I guess, charged for a felony or whatnot. Um, and then the blocking access to birth control. I mean, there's another bill that was also talked about in this committee that you would think that would have bipartisan support. Um, it's two Republicans, Representative Ch Kitchen, I know he's uh, sponsoring it, that would um, allow pharmacists to administer uh, birth control pills as long as you're 18. But there's also this questionnaire that they would have to fill out. The pharmacist could also take uh, take away the birth control if they saw any red flags. So maybe that's maybe some opposition to it. But like I said, all of these in general are coming once again ahead of the 2022 election cycle. We know Governor Evers has already vetoed some of them in the past. So Republicans just, uh, I guess, some uh, firing uh, you know, campaign talking points as they head into uh, next year. A couple reasons why to bring them back. Uh, one, there are new members uh, in both houses from the last time they did this. Uh, there are anti-abortion groups who play big roles in elections. 
if you are a new Republican member who supports anti-abortion viewpoint, you want to make sure those groups know that you're on the team. Mm -hmm. So having a ch chance to vote in these bills helps you in that regard. There are Democrats who are new that having them on record might be an attack ad if they're in a swing district. There's that. And then it puts Evers on record again opposing these bills. So it's a little bit of that. It's, it's throwing some red meat to the base saying, look, we know we can't change abortion laws because Evers is in office. We're not going to stop the fight just because of that. And we're still here for you. All right. Uh, let's move on to Wolf Hunt. Uh, there was a, a big decision uh, that the DNR board kind of acted un unilaterally and made their own decision when it comes to the Wolf Hunt quota. Uh, the Wisconsin DNR defied the board and reduced the Wolf Hunt quota to 130 wolves. Um, now, the board kind of scheduled this special meeting uh, Friday to discuss all of this. We'll see where this goes. But this was kind of just very uh, odd, I guess. It got a lot of mixed reactions. Mm. A lot of people like, can you do this? Is this legal? One board member said they are not free to just do that. They've gone rogue is what they've done. Um, so I guess, where does this go from here? So we had a couple of tracks. Remember, there are two lawsuits currently pending challenging the wolf hunt period. They want the wolf hunt to be done. Wisconsin did not have a wolf hunt for years because they are in uh, protected status. Once that was lifted, state law required a wolf hunt to go forward. The DNR did not want to do that in February this past year because it was during a breeding season, I believe, and thought it was the wrong time. They wanted to wait until the fall. Hunter Nation sued. It resulted in the DNR going ahead with the hunt in February. More wolves were taken than what they expected because um, it went so quickly. Now, the board set 300 as a quota, knowing that the tribes have basically, uh, the tribes in Wisconsin who believe the wolf are a sacred animal, they have a right to half the quota. The DNR board figured, well, they're going to take half of them, not going to cull those animals, so we're going to set at 300 because the DNR agency wants 130. We know they're not going to take all 130 if we set at that. Agency said, okay, that's great. We're going back to 130 anyway. <laughs> so now you have two lawsuits going on. They're going to stop the hunt. You also have the Department of Justice defending uh, the state in those two lawsuits while AG Josh Call tries to kick Fred Prane off the board. He's the chair whose term expired in May. There are some board members who like these conflict of interest for DOJ to be trying to defend these lawsuits, state in these lawsuits, while that action is going on. However, they asked for the board members uh, outside counsel. They were told no by DOJ and the governor's office because you have to meet certain standards to get outside counsel. This morning's meeting was talking about these lawsuits and see where to go from here. There was no uh, conclusion in the meeting this morning, so but there could be more discussions about that. DOJ told me it could not make this morning's meeting. They had a conflict of uh, scheduling conflict, mm. but could meet next week, and then we see where we go. But whatever's going to happen is we're going to have lawsuits. So we have the two suits trying to overturn the wolf hunt. Uh, Hunter Nation, which is again the group that sued to force the hunt this past February, told me that they are looking at the DNR agency action and reviewing it for possible legal action. They may sue to push the, the quota back up to 300. The good news is we have plenty of time to yeah. be in court between now and November. Well, not that much time, but the hunt's supposed to be for November, so it's a month, basically, to figure this out before people in the field trying to uh, cull wolves. That's what I was just going to say. You know, wolf's, wolf season is approaching, but yes. they do have at least a few weeks to settle this out and figure out what the number, I guess, magic number is going to be. Um, we're running out of time here, so let's just talk a little bit about redistricting before we get to stock picks, uh, JR. Uh, basically, we learned that the Wisconsin legislature plans to take up redistricting uh, by on the floor period roughly around November 11th. Mm -hmm. That's what a GOP attorney told the Wisconsin Supreme Court this week. Uh, quote, committed to acting on redistricting legislation. 
at a deliberate speed. Uh, that was Attorney Kevin St. John. Now, GP leaders have not really said publicly what date they will vote on them, but this kind of gives us a rough deadline. You know, we've been mm-hmm. talking about redistricting for the past several weeks about when are they going to act? When are they going to act? I ran into Speaker Voss in the hallway yesterday. Hey, do you know a timeline? And then, boom, of course, these articles start coming out that they the, the Supreme Court kind of set a date on here. So um, with having dates in mind, um, I guess, where do we go from here? What are some of the new dates? And I guess what are the deadlines now? Because we got federal deadlines and municipals, uh, cities and towns have their own deadlines as well to get their maps done. The significance of acting by November 11th is, is that this is coming as a federal court saying, when are you guys going to get stuff done? Because we don't know when we should step in. So the state Supreme Court asked all the various parties who are interested in this registry lawsuit to say, when do you think maps need to be done? And in their letter to the court about when they think maps need to be done, GP lawmakers said, we're going to act by the 11th, contingent upon the public input we get to maps by the October 15th deadline. Remember, they have that website where you can mm-hmm. you know, add what you think the map should look like, cut off is next Friday. If the legislature doesn't act promptly, it opens a door more to the federal court saying, you guys aren't getting it done. The state Supreme Court has not set a scheduling deadline yet or a briefing deadline, I should say, for like when these are going to happen or like when they think maps should be in place in these letters. There were dates from, you know, have it done by January to have it done by April. The federal court this week said, look, we're going to temporarily stay our case until November, I think it was 5th. We want an update by then of how the state Supreme Court case is going to know what's going on because we're prepared to act. We think the Supreme Court's going to do it, but if they don't, we're going to step in. So again, it's this pressure of wanting to get stuff done because if the state's not done this process, the feds will step in and do it. All right. Well, we'll keep following redistricting. It's going to be a hot topic in the coming weeks. Uh, let's get to Stockport's uh, JR uh, rising Eric Tooney, who is the GOP candidate for uh, attorney general. Of course, he's rising because Ryan Owens is out. He's the only person in the race right now. The question is, can he keep it that way? Mm-hmm. Um, he did not excite or has not excited the Republican uh, grassroots or the professional political class. He only raised forty-two grand that first reporting period. Um, he also charged but dropped charges against 10 people for breaking even a stay-at-home order. That's a no-no in Republican circles these days. The question is, can he lock up support among the Republican base between now and early next year? Getting endorsements would be good. Having a great fundraising number in January would be good. Because if there's not an alternate, alternative GOP candidate and Tony falters in fundraising-wise, they might write this race off. At the same time, conservatives are looking for a candidate. They've been kicking out names, talking to people. I talked to Jake Curtis, Milwaukee attorney. He's looking at it right now. He's considering it. Mm-hmm. But again, considering to running is a different story. The challenge for everybody new is, can you put together a campaign, start raising money, and put together a number where in January the people go, oh, this person is serious in time to like get excitement for your campaign because it's a closing window. And name, name recognition yeah. as well because it's statewide. Um, also, mix is Alex Lazary. Uh, he had a new campaign ad out this week, uh, kind of showing his ties to the Milwaukee Bucks and jobs, et cetera, tied to the Pfizer Forum. So you go on TV this far off for two reasons. One, you're going to stay on TV the entire time to the primary, which is very expensive. Or you took a poll before your ad, you're going to run this ad for several weeks, and then take another poll and say, look, I move my numbers, therefore I have momentum, therefore donors should give me a look. Like Mandela Barnes is the front runner right now for the Democratic nomination. Um, we're waiting to see what number he puts up for the past quarter, his first one raising money. Lazary with the ads... I put out a memo that he raised a million dollars, basically, in this last reporting period, So, which is all good. He, he's raising more money than anybody else, but we haven't seen Bob Barnes' number yet right. for this campaign. He's on the air, but he has to be on the air. 
they build his name ID to catch Mandela Barnes. Barnes has put out a couple of polls that show him leading the pack, right? Caveat is their internal polling, so they're right. best case scenario probably for Mandela. But it does underscore that the other candidates, whether it's Lazary, Galuski, Tom Nelson, you have to move the needle somehow. This is Lazary's attempt. The question is, will it move the needle in a significant way? And following this week is a second district vacancy. Evers uh, has extended the application period for the second district court. Hey, normally, uh, if you want to run for the uh, judicial office, being the incumbent is a great advantage. Right. <laughs> this is a very conservative district, however. And the last guy who got the Evers uh, appointment got pummeled for it in a conservative district and lost badly. It's just interesting to legal observers that he had extended the deadline to apply. It's a sign that people aren't really jumping at the bit because if you are a progressive or left of center judicial candidate, you don't have time because this vacancy opens January 3rd, the primary is in February, general's in April. You don't have time to build name ID or reputation as like, you know, who you are. So you'd be tied to Evers in a conservative district. If you're a conservative candidate, you don't want the Evers appointment because right. you're going to run on your own <laughs> and you're not really miss much by not getting the appointment, you know, in January. So it's just a sign that uh, this may not be filled through appointment. It may come through the election, and you can guarantee there'll be conservatives who run for that seat. The question is, will it be a progressive candidate as an alternative for voters in the 2nd District? All right, that's a wrap for this week. Thanks so much. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.